0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Gills Talk Podcast. I am your host, Kristen Smith, and today I am bringing you an interview with Gills Club scientist, Dr. Trisha Meredith. Before we hop into the interview, I did want to talk about our Gills Club scholarship to be able to give one person a full ride to the Shark Biology and Conservation course at the Shoals Marine Lab. This course is taking place during the summer from July 17th to July 31st, and with this then, the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy is offering a full ride. This includes tuition, room board, and the Shoals Lab fee for one student. This is available to female applicants, and you can find more information and to apply over on our website. I'm going to link that information through the bio of this podcast. You can also find it on the Gills Club social media pages. But what's really incredible is that this course is being taught by Gills Club co-founder, Dr. Heather Marshall and Gills Club science team member, Maggie Winchester. In our interview today with Dr. Meredith, we are going to learn if sharks are super smellers and how sensitive their noses actually are. We are also gonna learn how Dr. Meredith transitioned from a research side of things to education and how you can make that transition and still be able to work in both realms of sharks. So sit back and relax and enjoy our interview with Dr. Trisha Meredith. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Today we have Gills Club scientist Dr. Trisha Meredith on the pod today. So it's so nice to meet you. I've heard so much about you, but it's nice to be able to see you at least through the Zoom screen today. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I appreciate you having me on. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Um, So I know you have been part of the Gills Club Science team for a few years and seeing um, your work and with collaborators um, with Dr. Marianne Porter, who we had on um, two seasons ago or last season. So it's nice to be able then to have you on and talk about your past work and your current work. So I just think we should just jump right into it And talk about your past work. I was doing some stalking of you before we got started (laughs) today and seeing that you um, were working um, with shark noses and the flow of odor through noses, which sounds super interesting. So I'm just going to let you take the reins and tell us all about that research.
1: Shark noses is sort of the topic that I studied. For my doctoral work, I worked with Dr. Stephen Kajira at Florida Atlantic University, and I still get to collaborate with him, which is pretty common um, once people graduate. And he was a great mentor looking at lots of things, including the sensory biology of Elasma ranks. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to study when I went to work with him. I was intrigued by the sensory biology, but there was an opportunity to travel to Hawaii to collect data on how sensitive scalloped hammerhead sharks are to odors. And I jumped right on that. I figured jump right in, try something, see if you like it. And I was obsessed with the technique that we used. It was, I hadn't really been exposed to like electrophysiology before. It's a a widely used kind of concept in experimental biology where you put an electrode near the cells you want to record from. And if they're responding in a way like with small, uh, bits of voltage or ion shift that creates voltage that the electrode can pick up, then you can literally measure responses of any of those specialized cells to whatever stimulus. So you can put an electrode in the eye and um, stimulate the eye with light. You can put an electrode in the brain and you can do this with any animals, you know, um, and look at, at brain recordings. I put the electrode in the nose and this is what I learned from him during the Hawaii trip and stimulate the nose with odors. And then you can Uh, This is called an electroolfactogram because the Mm -hmm. electrodes in the nose and we would record the response of live elasmobranch species to odors. So you can test how low can they go and see how sensitive they really are to odors beyond the stereotype of like one drop of blood a mile away or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also compare their responses to different odors to see which ones stimulate them a lot and which ones are less stimulatory. And like, what is it about those odors? Try to figure that out. To kind of go back to your original question, the bulk of my PhD was doing this electrophysiological work to measure the sensitivity and the kind of olfactory preferences of a handful of elasmobranch species, ranging from skates to rays to sharks, um, and try to like replace our, you know, whatever myths or popular facts that we hear about on documentaries with actual data. Yeah. Um and then com- contextualize that like compare that to how sensitive other fishes are and how do different species stack up against each other are some super smellers compared to others. So I also looked at the anatomy of the nose to try to come kind of pair the recordings to like function with the structure. Um so that's a common thing to do the anatomy plus the physiology. Um, And look at the shape and size and kind of structural setup of the different noses of each of those species that I tested and see, you know, who has a lot of surface area in their nose, which might confer more sensitivity and then see, does it match up? Do they have differences in sensitivity and then what other kind of surprising differences we saw within the, the anatomy. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Um. So <laughs> I
0: was jotting down some extra questions as you were saying this. So I think like to have a shark go through this type of testing, how does one even like obtain a shark to do this? How do you like, cause you know, like sharks are wild animals, right? And when you work with wild animals, they all react differently. So how does one even like prepare themselves or prepare that environment? for that shark to be able to go through those types of tests.
1: Yeah, it's um, probably the hardest part is just getting to the moment where you're, you have an animal and you're doing an experiment. And for good reason, you cool. know, like we all get into this because we love these animals. And I, I and the, my colleagues take it very seriously to capture them and bring them into the lab. We know that that is not a choice that animal probably would have made for itself. Um, And we try to minimize the stress, the impact. We really are very mindful to the ethics of animal research. Um, And then also use as few individuals as possible to represent that species while making sure that we like get solid data can actually say something for what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, we would go out and collect the animals a lot of times. It depended on the species. I think we were able to work with colleagues at Moat Marine Lab to get clear-nose skates. So Dr. Carl Lohr is wonderfully collaborative, and I still appreciate his help getting clear-nose skates. And then uh, for the yellow stingrays and the Atlantic stingrays, uh, Atlantic Stingrays, we collaborated, collaborated with Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. They were um, catching them in their sampling efforts, and we were able to work with them to obtain some animals. And then the yellow rays, we would snorkel in the keys and find them and net them up. It was like some of my favorite work days. <laughs> we're snorkeling in the keys. I feel so yes. lucky. And then the sharks, the lemon sharks and the bonnethead sharks were my two shark species. And we would catch those mainly in the keys uh, using various fishing techniques like long lining or gill netting or just rod and reel fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, so then once you actually like nab the animal, then you have to quickly and efficiently transport it back to the lab and make sure that it's in good condition and you're taking really great care of it and minimizing stress. Not only is it like the right thing to do for the animal, but also you don't want your data be, to be wonky because you've you know stressed this animal out so bad. Um, so we transported them back to Florida Atlantic University's marine laboratory, which is at this cool little nature center called Gumbo Limbo. Um, and we have these. Nice big tanks that Dr. Kajira had set up there. Uh, We let them get acclimated and, and kind of come down from the stress of transport because, you know, it is stressful for them and make sure that they're eating and behaving normally. And then we would get them ready for an experiment. So for my experiments, they have to be totally still for the electrode to record these small voltage changes in their nose. So we would flip them upside down, inducing tonic immobility which people have probably heard of, but if not, um, sometimes with some species, when you flip the elasmobranch upside down, it can put them into this kind of, for lack of a more scientific term, like a zonked out state. They're pretty out of it. They stop moving. They stop trying to kind of get away. It's like a, a more natural way of getting them to be calm and still. But then we did use, you know, anesthetic and other kind of medications to make sure that they were hopefully not experiencing stress or any pain, um, and weren't moving during the experiment. So, uh, then they're, you know, they're in the tank kind of belly side up and we, you know, uh, secure them to the experimental platform. And then we put the electrode in their nose and a little tube to deliver the odor and get going with the experiment. And if the, if the prep, the experimental prep is working, like if your electrodes in the right place and the animal's tissue is responding properly, then You collect as much data as you can. That's kind of how an
0: electro olfactogram works. Thank you for explaining that. And I think, you know, with not having the previous knowledge of how any of that works, I don't think anyone would expect there's that much prep to get into that, you know? (laughs) So thank you so much for being able to do that. And then going off of it, like delivering the odor, like what odors are we talking about here? Do we just know that, that like this shark likes to eat these things. So we're going to deliver these odors to, to them. Is it, it's probably not that simple, but maybe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a really good question. And that's how, you know, initially I thought we would approach it, is you pick the odors that are relevant to them and their life, which is, it is how it turns out uh, to be. But um, those those fish odors or squid or, or crab odors from their prey are such a complex mixture of so many different individual chemicals and it becomes then very difficult to attribute responses to any particular one thing. So to make it easier to sort of discern what's happening inside of the nose and sort of which receptor types they have in there um, and how can we relate that back to other animals and how are those respe- receptors responding and which chemicals are binding, we have to get a lot more simple. So we take prey-related odors, which would be the most relevant in their life, and break it down to the most essential simple building blocks, which are amino acids. So we use the 20 essential amino acids like alanine and cysteine and valine, things you've probably learned about in chemistry class and maybe had to memorize the structure of. And uh, you can buy a little uh, bottle of powdered leucine and and mix it with seawater to uh, pick a particular concentration. That's the other thing is if you want to see how low an animal can go with its sensitivity you have to be able to know and then control what concentration that you're delivering to see what's the lowest concentration that'll still elicit a response from that animal's nose so that's why we went from something more like biologically based like a you know blended up you know crayfish or something to individual amino acids that we're mixing up and controlling the concentration
0: So interesting, and it's so it's something completely different than what we've had on this podcast before. (laughs) You know, and so though I find this so interesting. This is, and then you're figuring out um, like who these like super smellers are. So then, um, I'm sure then you were learning that different sharks, skates, or rays have more smelling power, better smelling power. I know it's not a power, but it's a sense, a better sense of smell than others. So then, what kind of conclusions then led during this research? I think. Our hypothesis or our
1: our assumption to start off with was that there would be some species that were more sensitive to olfactory stimuli or to odors than others, given their differences in lifestyle and prey and habitat and, you know, how murky it is. Maybe they can't rely on vision as well. So that, that species really needs to rely on olfaction much more. But kind of almost disappointingly, we found that all of the species that we tested at a really similar sensitivity or olfactory threshold is kind of the term we use to these amino acid odorants. Uh, When we look, you know, compare them from species to species, no significant difference. And further, they weren't significantly different from other fish in the ocean. So (laughs) we thought there's this perception that sharks are these like super smellers or swimming noses, you hear all these monikers on TV and, and even in the scientific literature, it gets thrown around a little bit. It doesn't seem like they are honestly, like they are um, just as sensitive to odors as other fish, which who are very sensitive. Like they can smell down to, you know, speaking in like scientific concentration terms, one part per billion, wow. like one part of a chemical in a billion parts of water, which is very sensitive, but they're not more sensitive than other fishes in the ocean which sort of makes sense because ocean water is not just like pure salt and water. It's got all of these background chemicals in it and it's hard to be more sensitive than the background level. It's like um, if you were really sensitive to sounds and you could hear like the quietest whispering, but you lived in a room where the radio was always on. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to be any more sensitive than your background level because you'll never be able to use that lower sensitivity. So it wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't want to dedicate energy to being extra sensitive. So it, it actually makes sense that marine fishes, including elasma, branks, sharks, skates, and rays are as sensitive as kind of the background level of odors.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Um, Being someone, you know, like who teaches about sharks in schools and in like community pr- programs and stuff, you know, we do say that they have a really strong sense of smell. So it's so interesting, like to to hear all this when I have to like like, (laughs) change what I say about things so um which is great because it's what I what we always say is that scientists are always learning and we're always you know myth myth busting and changing these misconceptions so um very interesting things but being able to kind of switch gears and mentioning with education and outreach um you also have you wear that hat as well as starting to transition into that and talking about um, how you are working in schools and teaching about sharks and things as well.
1: Um, The bulk of what I've described is uh, work I did during my PhD, which now is several years ago. (laughs) Um, I still do shark olfaction research. Mm -hmm. And like many of my colleagues that have transitioned to be researchers professionally and professors at universities and whatnot, uh, oftentimes, A lot of that is done through taking on students that want to learn from you and work with you. And uh, oftentimes they're primarily the ones in the labs conducting the work and consulting with you and brainstorming, going back, getting more of that data. So Dr. Porter, who you mentioned before, is a really close collaborator of mine. She's at the same university as myself. And we kind of, we joke, um, (laughs) co-parent some students. So we co-mentored master student, she graduated Aubrey Clark, her recent publication just came out. So you should check it out. Um, I'll send you guys the link, Uh, but it's on shark noses and moving beyond how sensitive sharks are to odors to like, they have this crazy labyrinth of tissue inside of their nose. And we've realized that it's really different from species to species, but we don't really know why it doesn't seem like it helps them be more sensitive to have a bigger nose. So what then? So we're thinking maybe it has something to do with optimizing the flow of odors through the nose and the binding of odors. Um, So her study is kind of looking at that using some very neat, newer methods like DICE CT. To get back to your question, sorry. Um, I'm still (laughs) doing that, but mainly by working with my graduate students that I kind of co-parent with Dr. Porter and our postdoc, Dr. Lauren Simonitis is doing a lot of work with us. So that's, you know, maybe like Quarter of my job is acting as a shark researcher, but I have a super cool job that's really variable where I work at what's called a laboratory school, which is a a kindergarten through 12th grade school. And it's physically located on FAU's campus. Florida has four of them in our state at uh, University of Florida, Florida State, uh, Florida ANF, and FAU all have one. And research is a part of the school's mission, which is different than a normal K through 12, like, you know, elementary, middle, high school. So my job with the lab school is that I'm the director of research. So I help us to kind of realize and develop and oversee our research part of our mission. Some of that is just being a researcher, doing my shark research stuff, but a lot of it is um, people do research on us, like we're their living laboratory, the College of Education, the psychology department, they'll come over and do research on best practices in education, look at child psychology, things like that. Uh, so I help mediate that. I help our teachers and other educators get trained in research best practices so that they can be researching what they're doing in their classrooms and putting some data behind it to really answer questions of, you know, does this new thing I tried uh, have a real impact that I can show? And then the third part is helping our high school students who are dual enrolled at FAU. Um, They just start college full-time after ninth grade. It's like a really amazing dual enrollment program. I help them get involved in undergraduate research. And so I oversee kind of a big program with a team where we have a series of courses that guide them through the research process from figuring out what they wanna research, understanding how to work with the research literature, find papers, understand them, how to match with the research mentor, how to write a grant proposal, how to present at a conference or symposium, and then eventually how to publish or get a patent. As a part of that, we have this really cool imaging lab that I'm sitting in now that has, it's like a sort of a a normal university imaging laboratory with microscopes. We've got an electron microscope over there and a micro CT scanner over there. So stuff that we don't have, you know, at the rest of the university. On purpose so that the faculty will come over here and work with our students so our students are working in here they're also working in laboratories at fau dr porter mentors many of our fau high school students uh, but we also bring the younger kids in here and we choose equipment that is not only like good for collecting data for publications but also friendly to a four-year-old so yeah our electron microscope is a tabletop version it's not this massive machine it's just sitting on the table and it has three buttons and four knobs and I'm fully comfortable with a four-year-old moving the stage around and like using an electron microscope which is you know unheard of for a four-year-old but then yeah. they get to kind of come in here and play and explore their curiosity and be like you know what does a, a bumblebee's eyeball look like oh my gosh it turns out it's hairy when you zoom in what is that about oh I see geckos crawling up the walls at my house what to, how does that happen? Let's look at the gecko toes and see if we see any any kind of indicators of how they're able to stick to the walls and the ceiling. Um, so it's a lot of like scientific exploration. Outreach is a common term that's thrown around, but I would say like, these are my people. So I, I, I'm sort of embedded here, but we're working with kids from pre-kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And, and the 10th through 12th graders are really early college students. And then we've got university collaborators coming in as well. So it's a really uh, exciting kind of collaborative hub for research and science exploration.
0: Mm -hmm. I, man, if I was in high school, I'd be begging my parents to move to Florida. That sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) We have kids come from all over the
1: world. Like people move here from other countries to go to this school because uh, it's a cool opportunity, obviously. But also it's a cost-free bachelor's degree. Um, which is a big deal for a lot of people. And, um, you know, understandably, you have to be able to do college as a very young person. So it's not for everybody, but for those kids who are really academically talented and driven, it opens all the doors for them. It's really beautiful.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's like you were saying, like you're learning how to read papers, apply for grants. Like I didn't learn how to apply for grants till I was out of college.
1: Yeah, same. Like we've had... um, (laughs) 65 of our students co-author peer-reviewed publications in scientific journals, including in the New England Journal of Medicine, Mm -hmm. which like I'll never publish in a journal with that high of an impact factor. And this was a 17 year old that didn't even have his high school diploma yet. So
0: they're special students. (laughs) They sound like it. What an incredible opportunity. I mean, that is a, an amazing gateway and pathway into not just shark science, but anything really in STEM
1: and the principles of research like that i learned becoming a shark scientist are almost surprisingly so broadly applicable mm-hmm. you know of course like learning that detailed kind of content specific information about olfactory receptor cells and amino acids and elasmobranch species and ecology is pretty specific but then the things that you're doing like how to troubleshoot an experiment when you're not getting data or Um, how to operate out in the field, like whether you're a plant biologist or, you know, capturing um, sharks for an experiment, like field work has common similar problems or, you know, applying for funding. We need to do that in shark science, but you need to do it in every other area of research as well. So those principles really are broadly applicable. And it's easy enough to just share that with people and be like, it's not a mystery. I'll just tell you how it works. And, you know, it's not, not that hard. We all know how to write papers. We all know how to Make a convincing argument, um, talk to people about our science with some practice, anybody can get good at it.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And that's something that always stuck with me. Um, My freshman year of college, we had to do they would all fr- freshmen have to do like that first like semester, like general class. And, um, mm-hmm. and it was a grad student who taught mine. And, and he, like we all had to read a book that didn't apply to any of us that were Marine science students. And he literally walked in the classroom, we threw the book away. And he's like, we're not talking about the book. He's like, I'm teaching you how to be like, be able to be successful within this department. And it was the best thing because he taught us how to properly read through a paper, how to start a paper, what, you know, what do you use a bar graph versus other graphs for, you know, Mm -hmm. like how to properly like show your data, like things that for me, they didn't come from, I came from a small farm town in Pennsylvania. So for me, like that, my school wasn't teaching me those skills because I was learning other things instead. And so it's really amazing to see that like the school's like setting them up for success.
1: And like, probably you could have learned that stuff earlier, but just yeah. the access to that information, it's not formally taught a lot of the times, um, but it could be, you Absolutely. Know? So, and it's a skill, these are all skills to be practiced, like scientific communication, or even just understanding a research article. Like I think about how I used to read research papers as a kind of a newbie scientist um, versus how I read them now is very different. Um, but just telling people like, it'll change, this is how you should tackle it now so that you get the relevant bits of information and don't stand, spend three hours and not remember what you read or get anything out of it. And then later, you're going to like really focus on the figures and maybe the abstract and really get every word out of the title because it summarizes the whole study in like less than a set. So mm-hmm. just, just talking about it and being like, this is normal. You're going to go through an evolution. It's going to be really hard at first, but it'll get better with practice.
0: Going in with kind of practicing and maybe getting them more experience. I know in um, in our emails before we were able to do this interview, you say that you also then take your students out tagging once yeah. again. Like I I had that experience in high school. I Again, I've been moving. Right. So <laughs> I would love to hear that experience and then what students you are able to get out of that. Yeah,
1: um, that's one of the funnest things we get to do. No surprise. And yeah. I have to admit, I am not a scientist who looks at shark movements. So I'm, I'm doing it for the fun value as well, yes. but connecting our students through my research collaborations with people who are doing, um, tagging and tracking of, uh, the animals movements, um, so that they can have an authentic research experience It's beyond like, I don't know, the fun value of it. Like, of course, like yeah. going shark tagging is like, Ooh, everybody would want to do that. Um, But like these are our, so it's Dr. Derek Burkholder and um, he works for NOVA um, and the Guy Harvey Research Institute. And he offers these trips to school groups. So uh, we went to grad school at the same time. He went to FIU, I went to FAU. So we've been kind of uh, colleagues for a long time. And now he's running this program that aims to um, do outreach to schools. And I work at this school. So we bring students um, and administrators and staff on the boat. And he not only shows them what shark tagging is like, but really couches it in like a research context, mm. which is, you know, what does it mean? What are the different types of tags or ways to track an animal's movements, like moving beyond shark science? Cause yeah. how many of these students will be shark scientists for the rest of their life? Like some small percentage, which is great, but like it is more broadly applicable when you're doing field work a lot of animal research in the field is tagging and tracking of animal movements. But then also they're taking a fin clip for DNA analysis. And many of these students may go on to like uh, biotech type jobs where they have to learn how to do a PCR and a Western blot or, or some like genetic sequencing. Um, so it'll connect with them in that way. Um, there We did a mouth swab to look at like microbiome. So there was a sample taken of that. Um, the measurements of the animal were taken. So thinking about just how to do morphometric measurements like length width, you know all of those things I liked especially that it was like really contextualized in a research setting um, and they can learn about field work and then apply it to sharks which are you know fun and exciting to everybody and um, they all participated I liked how hands-on it was too they were all like baiting the hooks setting the drum lines pulling them back in doing the mouth swabs clipping the tag on to the dorsal fin all of it they were engaged in it and my goodness it would like made my scientist heart so happy when we you never know what you're going to catch right and we pulled in a great hammerhead oh. and everybody on the boat screamed like they had just seen you know their favorite pop star at a concert and yeah. just waved to them like the fact that they were that excited about a stem field trip i was like i did it i'm never going to top that that was the best moment It was so great. They were so freaking excited. It was the best.
0: Yeah. And I think it sounds, I mean, just being able, it's like you said, to have these connections, there's a very small percentage that are going to go into shark science, but it all does apply to different things when you step back and really look at just the general concepts that you are learning during that trip. And we see that just with with our Gills Club members as well. There's a lot of our Gills Club members that love sharks and love our oceans, but they have gone on to college or, and being able, you know, they're not doing shark science, but they're in something with biology or land and it does all tie together. And, um, we have a post going out actually tomorrow, but, um, for when this podcast comes out tomorrow is a couple weeks ago. <laughs> um, so with that, then you can go back on our guilds club, um, social media we will be posting about it. but we have a guilds club member. Her name is Maisie. And she was walking the beach last week here um, on Cape Cod, and during this time of year, um, Cape Cod is very known for stun sea sea turtles. But we also get threshers as well. And yes, and um, she had came across a a thresher that unfortunately was dead by the time that they saw it, it was cold, stand down, but she jumped right into action, and she took all the measurements, she took, she took the tail measurements for us, she said everything, she, she, like, her mom sent us photos of her notebook, all, all of her, like, laying beside the shark to give us scale, (laughs) And (laughs) and it was the sweetest thing, and it just, like, shows that, like, these little things, that if it is at, this monthly pr- program that we're offering, or if it is that day-to-day in school that, you know, they are latching on to these concepts and applying right. them to real life. Yeah.
1: As well. And I think, you know, you guys are seeing this and I've, I've seen it too. And it's, everybody knows this, but like the impact of like an immersive hands-on experience cements those memories and in, in everybody's brain, let alone, you know, a growing student so much better, so much more effectively than just reading something in a book or listening to a lecture. So you start with that foundational content, but if you can get hands-on mm-hmm. and in a really memorable experience, like I just swabbed the mouth of a tiger shark, like that student will never ever forget that. And it, if you connect it, help them connect to the uh, more broadly applicable pieces of research and field work and microbiome. And what does that mean for our gut? And you know, it it all links up then you've really cemented in some powerful learning. So it's pretty special.
0: Yes, it is. Um, So as you were saying, not everyone becomes a shark scientist and not everyone gets their PhD in what you do and then moving on to what your current career is as well. So was this something that obviously probably in when you were going through your undergrad and your graduate, this was probably not in your mind, you know, everyone has this path and it, you never really know where you're going to end up. So, were you, when you were in your, your undergrad, were you always looking to be in shark science or were you just like strict biology? And then, like, it kind of broadened, or I should say, it got more concentrated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess, similar to lots of people, I um, was one of those kids that want to be a marine biologist. When I grow up, lots of kids start that way. A handful of people actually are wacky enough to make it all the way through. <laughs> and I'm one of those people. I never envisioned how variable and dynamic my current job would be, but I knew that it, I would be doing some like ocean science of some sort. Like that's where my heart is. I think for me, if I'm brutally honest, like my work on shark sense of smell is so intellectually stimulating and fun and interesting for me, but I was really feeling like we're all adding a small piece to a a big puzzle. Yep. Um, but I was feeling like my puzzle piece wasn't big enough that I wanted it to be. <laughs> like I'm I'm not directly a conservation biologist, like impacting policy, or um, you know, I feel like I'm I'm contributing like a corner to one small puzzle piece in a million piece puzzle. So the part that helped in my like job fulfillment kind of thing that I felt like I was missing was to be working, you'll hear this a lot from professors, obviously working with students who are then all going to go off and pursue their own careers, maybe in research or conservation or biology or or whatever. But like every semester, like I'm sending off a little cohort of students out into the world to apply what they've learned and do their best. And who knows, maybe one will win a Nobel prize one day, but like, I feel a lot of job fulfillment from having such a big impact and and working at the university, um, not only with our our dual enrollment program being embedded there, but also I have so many wonderful colleagues here that that allow us to kind of participate in helping to shape programs at a university-wide level. That feels like it impacts. Like we have a lot of people at FAU. That's like thousands of students that this could impact. So I really like kind of combining those two things. Like the marine biology side of my heart is really like satisfied and the intellectual curiosity can be satisfied. But then I'm also, um, I feel like I'm having, you know, making my mark on the world with these students.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. There is a real need incurrently currently now with youth in any part of their time in education to have someone like you that is being wanting to be involved and being immersive and showing that support as well. So I think it's really great that you found this really like unique way to do it. And I can see it just in our interview and with you talking, like you're lighting up, like talking about your students and what you do. And you can, re- it really shows that like you are absolutely loving this. And I, yeah, I, I don't <laughs> blame you. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. I feel very lucky. So you're totally right. just to wrap up then our interview um I always like to ask our scientist advice that you would give to your, your younger self going through this
1: oh man so I guess I'll back up a tiny bit I think part of the reason that I really am passionate about that particular type of like outreach and education I do which is like demystifying the research process and like how to get into grad school and and What comes after master's? What comes after, what's a postdoc? Like what are the different levels of professor? Just like demystifying all of that for people because I am a first-gen college student and nobody in my family had gone to grad school. I didn't even really know what it meant to go to grad school, let alone to aspire to have a PhD, but somehow it didn't stop me. So I feel like even though I felt that, you know, that phrase imposter syndrome, even though I felt those imposter feelings like, all the time. uh, Somehow it didn't stop me. I wish I would have just, I don't even know how to formalize this into advice, but like to be more secure about like, it's okay to not know, like Mm. you're not going to have a PhD's worth of expertise. You can make mistakes. You can ask questions. You can be open about your ignorance and just ask for help and support, like being in a school or a university, like everybody is there instead of like in private industry or research, you know, because they want to help students, they're about student development. So they're there for that. And you have the right and the res- responsibility to yourself to like, ask for the help that you want and need. And don't feel like, Oh, I should have known this. I better not tell anybody. I don't know it. They're going to figure out that I'm a fake and I don't belong here. Like that, those feelings, I wish I could somehow tell my younger self, like, it's okay to not know, yeah. but, but keep going anyway. And eventually you will know. Mm -hmm. So I wish I could say that more (laughs) snappily, but something like
0: that. No. And I think that's great advice to end on because it's like how we touched upon earlier. Everyone has different backgrounds and how they are, um, how they are raised, where they go to school, their family, everything like that. So it's okay that it's okay not to know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's okay to ask questions and learn more. And I think that's what being a scientist and just a human is about asking questions and learning. Yeah,
1: so. Yep. exactly. Getting comfortable in the unknown. I feel like that's probably the most powerful lesson I've learned. Even just like dabbling in other areas of research, like you're instantly out of your depth as soon as you step right outside of your tiny niche of like elasma brankle faction or whatever. But like it's fun anyway, to swim around in that uncertainty and learn more.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, and for anyone that would like to follow Trisha on social media, what are your social medias? Um, let's see on Twitter.
1: I'm at Trisha L Meredith. Um, and our um, programs that I oversee is at
0: FAUHS underscore research. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll have this also in the, in the podcast description as well. So people want to go and follow Trisha and her work. Please do. Thank you again. Thank you.